there was a jazz revolution in the 1920s, and it was coming. You know, they call it the Roaring Twenties for a reason, and there'd be a whole new style of music. And at the head of it, there would be two men, one of which we'd remember his name even to this day, but we're not going to talk about him. The other, a very shadowy and troubled gentleman, would uh, come to a demise at a young age. But when you look at it, his influence and his story probably foreshadows the rock and roll aspect even more than some of his contemporaries. He really set forth the tempo of the sad jazz musician coming to an early death because they're too tortured for their life or existence. And you won't even know the name I'm going to say because I could hardly pronounce it. Bix Beaterbeck. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. I'm Pat. I'm Ian. And as Pat was saying, we're covering the famous Bix Beaterbeck. You've it, all heard of him. Yeah, you know. come on. Like, the, just quit fronting. Everybody knows who Bix Beaterbeck is. Yeah. You know he's one of the most influential jazz players ever. Oh, we're going to find out. He is actually more influential than you were, you'd believe. Uh, he uh, runs alongside contemporaries such as Louis Armstrong. Yeah. That's a in name fact, that I he, think everybody can really remember. In fact, he even was considered one of the biggest influences along with Louis Armstrong. They were like the two guys. Yeah. I mean, side and side and shoulder and shoulder until uh, one rainy eve that we will talk about. That is honestly, this is... I don't want to give anything away, but I have been more excited about the ending of this one than I have about any episode before. So, ladies and gentlemen, strap yourselves in. Bix beat her back. And after that wonderful hype up, let's get to his birth. <laughs> it's always the best part. Leon Bismarck Bix Beaterbeck was born on March 10th, 1903 in Davenport, Iowa. Leon Bismarck Beaterbeck. <laughs> Leon Bismarck Beaterbeck. Oh, man. It's, it's, say it. Say it. Leon Bismarck, Bismarck Beaterback. I can't even say it. Like, Leon Bismarck Beaterback. <laughs> I had to pause there. <laughs> that's, that's, first of all, uh, dude, check out this, this tongue challenge. Say that name three times fast. So, anyway, he was the second son of German middle-class immigrants. His brother, Bernie, was born in 1895, and his sister, Mary Louise, was born in 1898. Mary Louise and Bernie, that's a very uh, 1890s name set. Don't tell that to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, well, he's, he'll get over it. His father was the owner of the East Davenport Lumber and Coal Company, and his mother was the daughter of a Mississippi Riverboat captain, also an accomplished pianist, and viewed Bix's early efforts to play piano as part of a well-rounded cultural education. She played the organ at the Davenport's First Presbyterian Church, and encourage young Bix to play piano. Ooh, anybody in the young life who gets encouraged to play piano when they're young, always a good start, guys. Encourage kids to play piano if you want to be great musicians because it teaches them everything else. And he started real young. He began playing piano at the age of two or three. His sister recalls that he stood on the floor and played the piano with his hands over his head. Well, of course. I mean... I don't know if you guys have ever been a toddler near a piano, but you push, nope. you push the white key and it goes bling, bling, bling. Now, the one thing about Bix, he was gifted with a musical ear. He started picking out simple melodies on the piano in kindergarten. He even impressed his teacher by directly reproducing vocal melodies on the class piano. He started taking private lessons from a guy named Professor Charles Grade. And unfortunately, he couldn't really instill the discipline in Bix to sight read. <laughs> hey, uh, let's be fair. I can't sight read. Can you? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not the, we're not highly accomplished musicians or anything, but Jesus, like sight reading was overplayed back then, I think. And he even frustrated his piano teacher by playing his entire lessons by ear. Oh, of course he did. But, you know, he was considered a phenom on the piano, and his local paper even had the headline, Seven-Year-Old Boy Musical Wonder. Wait, he was in the paper at seven? Yep. What the fuck? These these 1,900 people need, like, more stuff to talk about. <laughs> Seven-year-old child, really good at piano. Well, when you don't have hyper news like we do nowadays, sometimes you just got to fill it with some stuff. Oh, let's not talk about hyper news. Moving forward. At the age of 10, his older brother Bernie recalled that he stopped coming home for supper. Instead, he went down to the riverfront and slipped aboard one or two excursion boats and played the calliope. Wait, hold on. What is a calliope? I've heard the name. I just can't remember what it is. So a calliope is an instrument that produces sound by sending gas, originally steam, and, you know, more nowadays, compressed air through large whistles, kind of like locomotive whistles. So it's it's like a big organ piano, but, you know, a lot more nasally, I guess you could call it. Oh, so it's like a pipe organ or something. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And so in 1918, his older brother started bringing home, you know, a bunch of 78 RPM sides by the original Dixieland jazz band. Ooh, that's a throwback to an episode y'all didn't get. Yep, Woo! take that. Once We haven't made reference to the Invisible First episode this season at all, so. <laughs> if you guys don't know them, they're an all-white five-piece band from New Orleans Ensemble who even claimed to have invented jazz, but they didn't. Yeah, they were just rich enough to record it first. That's all they were privy to. They, yep. they were decent enough guys. Their music doesn't suck, but they spelled jazz with two S's instead of two, G, two uh, Z's. <laughs> And, and actually, the origin of that spelling is also racist, too. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're just we're going to skip over them. The music doesn't suck, but everything else about it sucks. But as a high school freshman, Peter Beck did become drawn to the sound of the original Dixieland Jazz Band's trumpeter, Nick LaRocca, who was the band leader. And so around the same time, he was given a battered silver-plated cornet from a friend, and he learned it left-handed and using the wrong fingering. Every single LaRocca's trumpet line note by note by slowing down the turntable on the family's phonograph. <laughs> that's pretty actually, that's inventive. Yeah, just play it on a slower uh, setting. That's that's pretty cool. What I think is funny, though, is he used the incorrect fingering for it. And so this would kind of plague him his whole career. He couldn't sight read. He kind of played it incorrectly, but he was kind of badass at it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, being a guy who self-taught myself piano and plays triads wrong half the time still, yeah, I understand that, and y'all can suck it. And so, really, he kind of privately studied the cornet. You know, he didn't tell anybody he was really playing it. He continued to play piano, start a small band, and perform, like, tea dances and Friday afternoons at the school gym. He also performed with the Neil Buckley's Novelty Orchestra and the Plantation Jazz Orchestra. You know, just playing music, piano, you know, just doing what he can. Nice. And while he was doing this, you know, he started traveling on those, you know, steamboats up and down the river. And this is actually where Louis Armstrong first claimed to have met Bix. But 
you know, historians disagree on whether he actually met him or not. You know, you know how it goes back in this era. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes, we, as we always talk about, the folk myth is more important. So that's what really resolves to more than the evidence itself. And so Peter Beck's education career wasn't the best. He attended the Davenport High School from 1919 to 1921. If you're counting, there, he's missing a year for graduation. But really... He just wanted to be a professional musician, and he just started sitting in with different musicians like Wilbur Hatch and Floyd Bean, Carlisle Evans. He even performed in the school's vaudeville night, singing in a vocal quintet with the Black Jazz Babies, and he finally started playing his horn. Oh, yes, the horn. The young man with the horn. The cornet. If you don't know what a cornet is, it's just a little larger trumpet. As he continued to play more with the Neil Buckley's Novelty Orchestra, the group was actually hired for a gig in December 1920, but a complaint was lodged with the American Federation of Musicians, Local 67, and the complaint was that the boys did not have a union card. Oh, my God, the fucking union. Yep, and so Bix had to go audition in front of the union executives. He was forced to sight read, and he failed. He did not earn his card. See, so this is so weird to me. Like, there's some, like panel of people from musicians like like you know what i mean like you have to go apply for a music like it's it's a musician's union where you gotta like the, you sit in front of the executives and yeah. you fucking play for them what is this shit like I the know. 40s are crazy dude i mean or i guess it's, it, <laughs> excuse me the 20s are crazy dude <laughs> like seriously i don't even know what to say about that like that's just insane to me yeah i don't know it's weird like hey if you want to a professional musician you got to play in front of us i mean how awkward would that be especially since he's probably about 16 or 17 at this point yeah exactly and imagine how that would play out today could you imagine if there's like some set of like corporate executives they're like if you want to actually like play professionally you have there's you have to play in front of these three people i mean i'm sure actually the music's you know if in an isolated way the music uh, genre or excuse me the music industry is much like that except now it's no longer one set of uh of union reps it's all these fucking companies yeah which is i mean, arguably more chaotic but you know all right and so now we gotta kind of get to you a little bit of uncomfortableness here i do i don't like how you're sighing like that yeah i don't like this one so on april 22nd 1921 about a month after he turned 18 peter beck was arrested by two davenport police officers on a charge brought by the father of a young girl. According to a biographer, Jean-Pierre Lyon, Bix was accused of having taken this man's five-year-old daughter into a garage and committing on her an act qualified by the police report as lewd and lascivious. What the f- God damn it, Bix? Dude, I had talked you up so much to this point. You know, no wonder. And Louis Armstrong deserves to be famous. I'm going to spot you, light you out with the asshole spotlight right now. Uh, no wonder Ian's frowning like that. See, <laughs> we don't always prepare each other for this bullshit, but that just fucking pisses me off. I'm lighting you up with the asshole spotlight right now, Bix, if that actually happened, if it's not some weird bullshit. We're not going to speculate. There's no way to dig into real information about that. Right, and, you know, he was briefly taken into custody, held on $1,500 bail. The charges were dropped. According to the father, this was because of the child's age and it's not really clear whether he actually did this or not, but it's definitely a stain on his reputation. And yeah, I mean, that's that's a black stain. That's those sort of stains yeah. on your reputation you don't come back from. 
and this is just my theory personally, but maybe this is why he started drinking so much. I mean, that would make sense. I mean, regardless of, I mean, either way, one way or the other, if you did it or you didn't do that, that both of those lead to you probably drinking more. Yeah. Because you're repressing something or, or dealing with something there. And yeah, I, this actually probably makes a lot of sense considering what's going on and what happens moving forward. Yeah. That uh, one, that one really bummed me out when I, when I read that, I was like, cause I, all the information I have found, you know, it's it's fun, it's light, and he's doing all this stupid shit, failing school, just playing music professionally as a high school student, and then this happened. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things we do here is, like, we do biography people. So a lot of these times we run into these kind of fucked up situations where we have to bring these things in front of you. And so I hope everyone at home is listening. And, you know, we clearly state from the beginning, this is an adult podcast, so... If you're letting your kids listen to it, you're already in the asshole spotlight yourself. <laughs> so you and Bix are shoulder and shoulder at this point. So I wouldn't deal with that. But seriously, like if you can't be mature enough to deal with situations like that, you know, just try and skip over stuff like this. And, you know, next time we'll give a warning, then, yeah. you, then you can skip over it. I think whenever Ian's really bummed out, you may want to skip it. Just uh, like we'll we'll try and be better about content warning moving forward. This one wasn't as bad as it could have could have been, even though that's te- uh, that's pretty terrible. I mean, that one's up there. No, that's it. That is terrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying, you know, we there was nothing too graphic about it. We apologize in, in the advance, but we'll do better next time. Uh, I tried to keep that one clean because it was disturbing enough yeah so you know either way moving forward we're going to continue to biography the rest of this guy and his career all the way through and we will just leave that to the question mark of time and if he really did that then you know whatever roast in hell asshole and so shortly after this Bix's parents enrolled him in an exclusive lake forest academy about 35 miles north of chicago and Historians, you know, they suggest that him moving here was possibly because of his arrest or his poor grades in high school, but a lot of them seem to think that they wanted to discourage his interest in jazz. Well, I mean, I could see this. Okay, so let's just mirror this a little bit, because I can see, like, the the teenage, uh, like, from our generation, you know, with heavy metal or whatever it may be. Yeah, this is kind of the rock and roll of its day. Yeah, exactly. So, like, the kids are like, oh, my God, he's listening to the jazz music and whatever other fucking disgusting shit that he's up to and all this. So we're going to send him away to military schools, essentially what's happening here. Yeah, basically. It's a boarding school, you know, kind of like really like a U.K. tradition or if you got a little bit of money, send your troubled child to get fixed with a paddle, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, their parents thought, you know, it would provide Bix with the necessary, you know, attention and discipline to improve his academic performance. His interest, however, basically remained in music. I guess sports too, but I really couldn't find anything about him playing any sports, so maybe he just loved watching sports. And with his interest basically being in music, Bix took the train to Chicago to catch the hot jazz bands at clubs and speakeasies, including the infamous Friars Inn, where he listened to and sometimes sat in with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Ooh, I know that name. And this is actually where we get our first do check out this song. The New Orleans Rhythm Kings, Golden Leaf Strut. Yeah, that's a great song. I mean, I actually, I came across it while I was doing my research, too. It's, it's, a, it's a jam. Just listen. It's a good one. Listen to it. And, you know, when he went to these excursions in Chicago... He mainly just traveled in the African-American South Side to listen to what he called real jazz music. He even wrote to his brother one time, and I quote, Don't think I'm getting hard, Bernie. 
but I go to hell to hear a good band. Wow. But don't think I'm going don't think I'm getting hard, but I would literally go to hell to hear good jazz. Apparently he's not a fan of the fiddle because that's what the devil plays. Oh, well, I mean, well, that's what I was, I, I think that's kind of an implication that, is that still a theme then? I don't even, because I don't think that's a thing until the devil went down to Georgia, right? I don't know. We'll have to do an episode on that. Okay, yeah. We're not, we're not, gonna, hey. we're not going to speculate because I'm putting it on the list right now. Moving forward. Halloween special, man. Yeah, exactly. When he was actually at school, he did help organize the Cy Bix Orchestra with drummer Walter Cy Welge and almost immediately got into trouble with the Lake Forest headmaster performing at school dances, you know, not dressed appropriately. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> well, you know, not suited up, you know, just oh, in rags. Okay. All right. Oh, right. I kind of implied something a little different there. Yeah, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> this is a, I know that we just had the other thing, but what? <laughs> no, 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 he wasn't a streaker. Oh, okay, cool. But Bix often failed to return to his dormitory before curfew and sometimes stayed off campus into the next day. In the early morning hours of May 20th, he was caught on the fire escape to his dormitory, attempting to climb back into his room. The Busted. Fac- the faculty voted to expel him the next day due both to his academic failings and his extracurricular activities, which included drinking. Oh, Bix. Bix, Bix, Bix. Dude, you're off the rails, man. You're already like... Nah, he's having a good time. He's 18 years old, man. Come on. He's, he's living his life. Okay, let's be, like, real honest here. Like, I'm seeing one of the first, like, actual, like, chronological themes that we've dug into of this sort of... I keep drawing back to it, like I said in the intro, but rock and roll. I oh, yeah. I feel like he... Besides the, the, the dark spot, we are, like... We're talking, like, mostly, like, rock and roll type of things. You know, no school... Yeah, stay I'm just going to go play music yeah. and drink all night. I go to hell to see a good jazz band. I'm going to stay up all night. They kick me out of prep school. Like, you know, whatever it may be. Like, that's that's rock and roll. Yeah, and they even sent a letter to his parents following his expulsion that said, your son was drinking and was responsible, in part at least, in having liquor brought into the school. Oh, no, Bix. Dude. And welcome to the beginning of his music career. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> dude, what the fuck, Bix? Like, we're already, we're not even far into it. And I gotta say, like, you know, I was pretty excited to talk about this until the rest of this. And, I, you know, I know only a little bit of what's gonna happen, and I'm still pretty excited to find out just because I'm interested in that sort of subjects. But, Bix, you're not passing the, you're not getting the asshole spotlight off you. I'm actually gonna turn it up a couple clicks. Well, let's just wait. Oh, oh, yeah? It gets worse? <laughs> I'm not going to say worse, but we'll get into it. Oh, my. And so in late 1923, Bix joined the Wolverine Orchestra, a seven-man group that first started playing in a speakeasy called the Stockholm Club near Hamilton, Ohio. They really specialized in hot jazz. Hot jazz. That sounds fun. Yeah, and actually, an interesting note here, they took their name. From a frequent number they always played, a Jelly Roll Morton song. Oh, I think I know that guy from called, somewhere. Called Wolverine Blues. And here's my second dude, check out the song. You got to check out Jelly Roll Morton, Wolverine Blues. Yeah, definitely. And also maybe check out an episode. Of course, you do mean our second episode, right? <laughs> of course. Oh, by all means, please. 
guys, if you haven't if you haven't checked that episode out, it's it's well worth it. I know it's a little early in our uh, recordings, but you know, it's before, you can see where we came from. It's before the good mics, at least. So on February eighteenth, nineteen twenty four, the Wolverines recorded their first songs with Gannett Records in Richland, Indiana. And they only recorded two sides, and one of them was Fidgety Feet, actually written by Nick LaRocca and Larry Shields, both from the original Dixieland Jazz Band, and a song called Jazz Me Blues. Oh, Jazz Me Blues. And so the solos that Bix actually played on these recordings, they were considered something new and pretty significant in jazz. Unfortunately, though, these songs didn't get a critical reception, They didn't attract a large audience at the clubs they were playing. And so they broke their contract with the club and left and took up residence at Indiana University playing for fraternity dances. And it was here where they started packing it in. And to quote a jazz saxophone from the time, George Johnson, he says, they played many a jam session at the fraternity house, packed twice the capacity, and Bix's efforts would produce shouts and the reverberations from which have crumbled any but a stone house. Oh my goodness! So they're, they're getting, taking down the house, like getting wild literally. on campus. Yeah. So this, I mean, honestly, that sounds like some fucking uh, what is that? Some animal party shit or Animal House, whatever that eighties like uh, fraternity movie is. Yeah, <laughs> sounds a lot like a flapper girl version of that, which I'm not complaining <laughs> about. I, by the time machine, I'd put that on the destinations list. And so between February. In October 1924, the Wolverines would actually record 15 more sides. And, you know, between this time, Bix really, like, supposedly toughened up his lips. I'm not I'm not a trumpet player, but apparently that's a thing. Yeah, so embouchure, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I didn't actually have to do any research about this. This is all my middle school knowledge for, uh, you know, band and stuff. But the embouchure is, like, the, the muscles in your lips. And so how you, like, how you can pucker your lips and how your lips can hold a certain tone. Like, the harder your lips are, the more, like, sharp your tone and the more, like, specific to each note you can get. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it is, like, hardening your lips is ironically a really weird way to say it, but it is the, the probably the best way to say it. Among these 15 sites that they actually recorded, they had some songs that, you know, have a name to them, like Riverboat Shuffle, Copenhagen, Sensation, and Lazy Daddy. And so do check out Fidgety Feet, Riverboat Shuffle, and Copenhagen, all by the Wolverines. Yes, the Wolverines are by far the best era of music. Like, it, see, I'm, I'm once again drawing all these modern parallels. This guy it hits all of these like modern like story archetypes because now you got the Wolverines. That's his original band that he really gets famous with. Yeah, and also is arguably his best and his most original music. And a lot of people will refer back to this like, oh, I like Bix's early stuff. But like you know, getting back to that B sides conversation we had in the in the band episode. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it'll, it'll come down to the fact where like you know, it's all Bix is always cooler if you listen to the the Wolverine stuff than Bix alone or whatever it may be. And so an interesting thing about Bix's first recordings, it came twenty one months before Louis Armstrong recorded as a leader with the Hot Five. And so in a way, he kind of predated some of these early amazing trumpet solos that came about around this time too yeah and that's that's one of the things where it really starts to continue to mirror that modern music arc where you know he did it first but didn't quite make the same splash and somebody came along and 
was legendary with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they even had different musical styles, too. So, and that's what I really want to take a second to talk about, the difference between Louis Armstrong and Bix. So, you know, we've got the the verses head-to-head. You know, if, <laughs> Death match, only, <laughs> only one may exit. Yeah, exactly. Bix versus Louis Armstrong fight. But either way. What we're getting into here is there's a there's a pretty distinct difference in the presentation, and it even starts to exasperate itself over a little bit of time. So we say that Bix did it first because Bix did do it first, but Bix actually didn't leave the genre as much as Louis Armstrong did technically. I mean, so one of the things that that Bix did is he started to create these interwoven uh, kind of frontline solos. But it wasn't just focused on one soloist. Well, well, it was. I mean, by versus the way jazz was before, it still was focused on one soloist. But instead, wouldn't that be the technical term of a soloist? Yeah, well, of course. But in this particular era, Bix was opted towards the soloist that also mixes with either other members of the band doing their own solos or things like that, where they had okay. the, the interwoven uh, solo style where you almost have one or two instruments taking, like, handing off the baton back and forth. Gotcha. Where uh, Louis Armstrong, the farthest separation from old jazz in this era, because the older jazz in this era was everyone playing all at once, just kind of in this chaotic, you know, jazz, you know, boom, boom, jazz. I, I can't even really get into it, but it is, if you listen to, like, 1910 jazz, it sounds very chaotic, not just because of the composition and even the recordings you'll run into. It's chaotic because of the way they did it. It was supposed to be broken time signatures and different things coming together, where in this particular instance, we have more of uh, Louis Armstrong in our other uh, angle in our verses, where he very much leaned on the soloist trumpet. You know what I mean? He stood forward in front of the band much more than Bix ever would. Oh, yeah, so Bix kind of flowed into the mix of the song a lot more where Louis Armstrong was the outstand, you know, true yeah. soloist, like, look at me. The first time I, like, you know, Bix, yeah, of course Bix was the head of the band. There, We found so much documentation where people who weren't, like, other bands would put Bix on their cover to sell more. Yeah, and pretty much anybody he played with said that he would lead the band. Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the things. Like, it's almost like an active conductor in the soloist, but, you know, he was more likely to introduce the band and let them do solo pieces than Louis Armstrong, I say, would. would. And probably for good reason, because while Bix is really good and has amazing technical value and his composition is sweet and spicy and everything you would want out of a composition, Louis Armstrong has him beat in one major attribute. And what's that? Soul. Body. Louis Armstrong, unfortunately, has so much body to what he plays on the trumpet in this era and so much, like, the, the way that he lifts his music and stuff. There is a kind of an, a reasonable reason why, why Bix isn't as famous as Louis going forward. Because Louis stands, I think, more on his own, where Bix was more likely to stand on other people's work. Well, and so, Biederbeck, trying to go a little bit more commercial with his music, he left the Wolverines in October 1924, and he joined Gene Goldeck and his little orchestra. They started recording for the Victor Talking Machine Company, and their musical director, Eddie King, 
did not like Bix's hot jazz style of soloing. He didn't think it was copacetic with the commercial obligations that came with the band's recordings. And he really hated the fact that he couldn't sight read. <laughs> oh, man, they're really picking on people for not being able to sight read here. Apparently, that's a thing in these days. Nobody's looked down on me about not being able to sight read since, like, the very first person who tried to teach me music ever. And they were <laughs> like, why can't you? You got to read the notes, and those are really important. And then everyone else is like, dude, just understand what's going on. Yeah, my first guitar teacher tried to get me to sight read, and I'm like, but I want to play this punk song. And he goes, no, never learn that kind of music. <laughs> Excuse me, we are done here today, good sir. That, Goodbye. That is not real music. They only use power chords. <laughs> so soon after he got kicked out of Jingle as band, he ended up arranging his own recording session in Richland with some of the members of that same band that he got kicked out of. On January 26, 1925, Bix and his rhythm jugglers put two tunes to wax Toddlin' Blues. Another song written by LaRocca and Shields of the Dixieland Jazz Band. And one that he wrote himself, Davenport Blues. Now, one of the biographers really complained about Davenport Blues being marred by the fact that they were all drunk on this recording. Didn't bother me, because dude, check out this song, Davenport Blues. Wait, they're all drunk on that recording? Apparently, they were all drunk. We listened to that earlier, and it kind of rocked. I mean... I know. I thought it was good. Let's be completely honest, though. Most of the people are kind of something on something in some recording, <laughs> and it sounds good because of it. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not endorsing drugs or alcohol in any means in this moment, but it's just a fucking theme. And it just sounds like some snooty jazz critic to me, really. Yeah, well, I mean, you know how jazz critics are. And so after these recordings, he decided to enroll in the University of Iowa and really, he just wanted to take a bunch of music courses, but his guidance counselor forced him instead to take classes on religion, ethics, physical education, and military training. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that was a thing to study back in that day, but there you go. I'm going to make you study religion, ethics, working out, and killing people. <laughs> go. What? Well, I'm a jazz musician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and surprisingly enough, that didn't sit well with him. He <laughs> immediately began skipping classes, and after he participated in a drunken bar fight, he was expelled. Yep, there you go. Possibly only lasting 18 days. Oh, well, 18 days. That's pretty good for Biggs. <laughs> I mean, for, for all of the shit that he appears to be. Rock and roll, baby. Yeah, rock and roll in quotation marks. And so that summer, he ended up playing with several friends in a lake resort in Michigan. And that band was actually run by Goldkeck, who, you know, kicked him out of a band earlier. <laughs> now he doesn't care if he can sight read. And because of this, he ended up meeting a saxophone player named Frankie Trumbauer. The two hit it Dude, off. Wait, hold on, hold on. Frankie Trumbauer didn't play trombone? No, he played saxophone. Oh, I'm disappointed in that. But they did hit it off immediately. Personally, musically, it was even said that Bix looked up to him as like a father-like figure. But Trumbauer was warned to, and I quote, look out, he's trouble, he drinks, and you'll have a hard time handling him. Oh, we all have that friend. But they were basically inseparable for the rest of Bix's career. That's awesome. I mean, that's something. And after meeting Trumbauer, they ended up organizing a band you know, to play at the Arcadia Ballroom 
in St. Louis. That sounds like a cool place. I feel like I've heard of the Arcadia Ballroom at some point. I, I can't honestly remember where, but that's a name that would stick with you either way. Well, he did end up playing with a clarinetist named Pee Wee Russell, who ended up praising Peter Beck's ability to drive the band. And I quote, more or less made you play whether you wanted to or not. If you had any talent at all, he made you play better. Oh, well, I mean, that's good. I've been in a lot of bands where the leader is not like that. And, you know, so if, that, if you have an option to have that, have that. You're not talking about me, are you? You were never the leader of any of the bands we were in together, Ian. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. After that moment of whatever that was, <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> and so in October 1926, he ended up joining another of Goldkeck's bands. One that eventually ended up becoming called the Famous 14. Oh, that's cool. Famous 14. That's like the Samurai 7 times 2. <laughs> or 7 Samurai, excuse me. Sorry, Kurosawa. They ended up playing at the Roseland Ballroom in New York, opposite of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. Don't know a lot about these guys, but apparently that was a big thing. Yeah, I have no idea who that is, but that sounds cool. The only thing I could really find about them is they were the East Coast Outstanding African-American Big Bands. What? Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that's something we got to look into for another episode. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're on the list now. And then one night, the Roseland Ballroom promoted a quote-unquote battle of the bands in the local press. And October 12th, after a night of furious playing, Goldkeck's men were declared the winners. Someone in the audience was even quoted as saying, we were amazed, angry, morose, and bewildered. That's a lot of things for an audience to be, and none of those are good for your band. Except for amazed, maybe. I mean, if amazed is alone, in, or maybe <laughs> uh, followed by compliments, I'm all right with that. They were amazed, angry, morose, and bewildered. Yeah, you could be amazed at a lot of things, and not all of them good. That's so. a fair point. You know, let's uh, let's not use amazed as too much of a qualifier here. And although this famous 14 would go on to record some stuff, there's really nothing in there that you can kind of point out was uh, Bix's stuff. He didn't do any solos in it, so yeah, it's just he just was there. He was there, but also while he was playing in the famous 14, he did end up recording with his friend Frank Trumbauer on February 4th, 1927. And they ended up recording some tracks like Trombology, Clarinet Marmalade, and Singing the Blues. And many critics think this is Bix's best work. And so on that note, do check out the song Clarinet Marmalade. Clarinet Marmalade, uh, that's a confusing name, but I like Marmalade, so whatever. It's a very upbeat song. Like You guys will notice that I've kind of picked the more upbeat songs from these works. That's my favorite stuff that he did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that really plays towards the style more than anything. You get that upbeat, and then you get those mixing, you know, clarinets into, uh, like, trumpet solos, you know, multiple instruments kind of intertwining. That's when the upbeat stuff plays a lot better. And that's, I honestly think, why a lot of Louis Armstrong's slower stuff is better. I think as a kind of, uh, you know, we... We don't really typically cover, like, famous people, so it's not really a big deal for me to, you know, talk about this a little bit. But 
that really is an interesting thing if you really think about it because then the slower stuff with the single soloist ends up becoming more popular and more iconic over a longer point of time though right and it just kind of points to their contrasting style too because louis armstrong definitely was better at the slower stuff oh yeah absolutely and then well I mean, I don't, uh, do we have any of Bix singing? Because, you know, we all we all know Louis Armstrong when he gets, when he isn't playing, you know, his, his singing stuff is. I have not actually found anything singing. It's all mainly cornet, but there are a few piano pieces out there too. Yeah, and, you know, so that's probably just another dynamic that puts another disadvantage for Bix in this sort of verses that we're talking about here because, you know, the the reality is that, that voice that Louis has uh, really carries him through the ages forward. Yeah, that one's super recognizable, too. You always know when he's singing. Yeah, exactly. And so in September 1927, Gold Keck's orchestra temporarily disbanded, and Biederbeck played with a bass saxophonist named Adrian Rollini. Ooh. But the bigger thing he did is he joined the four-man trumpet section of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. Paul Whiteman. I've actually heard of that name, and that's, like, not my thing either. So if I've heard of that name from that far back, that's a pretty big pretty big hoopta there. You hit the nail on the head there with big, too. Because at 300 pounds, Whitman was huge <laughs> both physically and culturally big. And so this is a quote from a New York newspaper. A man, flabby, virile, quick, coarse, untidy, and sleek, with a hard core of shrewdness, in an envelope of sentimentalism. That's that's Whitman or Whiteman? That's Whiteman. Oh, that's I like that description. I think we should put that asshole on a list. <laughs> All right, computer, put him on the list. There's one of those rare moments where you see that me and have been hanging out for way too long because we both cued the bee boops at the exact same moment. I'm sorry about that, that you guys had to be there for that uh, with us. but We apologize. Yeah, it's It's been enough episodes now where you guys can start to see under the hood, so fuck you. Moving forward. And Bix ended up recording about 45 sides with Whiteman, but there's nothing really noticeable. You know, he was just kind of part of the band. There was no trademark solos or anything, so I will find some stuff to play, but I will include some of their music in it. Yeah, for sure. We'll 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 pick through it and find some of the best stuff for you guys to listen to. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, we're trying not to make it anticlimactic, but it is kind of anticlimactic. Actually, his most famous interpretation of the things that he really did the most success on. He was really a background character. Yeah, you you don't even you. He's not even forward. And I mean, you know, despite whatever we our personal opinions of him at this point are, you know, that still kind of sucks. Well, and so years of drinking liquor. And many, many years on the road, his health started to suffer. He took time off from Whiteman's orchestra, you know, to recuperate. About November 28th to March 29th, no specific dates, you know, just vague stuff there. He eventually did end up returning and joined the band in California in May 1929, but only for four months as his health problems started to plague him again. And do we know what his health problems are at this point? At this point, no, but you can assume they're related to drinking. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, we, we're, we're all making that assumption already. After he left, he moved back to Davenport for a little while and then ended up leaving that shortly after moving back to New York in 1930, jobless and in ill health. 
Oh, poor guy. Kinda. As long poor uh poor guy, as long as you didn't diddle that fucking five year old, you piece of shit. Sorry. Moving forward. And in early nineteen thirty one, he actually started turning down offers. Whiteman wanted to rejoin the band. In fact, Whiteman never filled his seat. It was a permanent open spot till Bix entered the band again. Well, that, that's that's a nice positive. Like that, that somebody cares about you that much. They were like, "You're welcome back anytime." But yeah, he just didn't want to travel around anymore, and he just ended up playing locally in New York. You know, some local stuff, you know, dances, that kind of stuff, occasional orchestra. And so the week leading up to his death, oh, had been really hot, making it difficult to sleep. And into the late evenings, Bitterbeck played the piano, both to the annoyance and the delight of his neighbors. Yeah, it depends if you could sleep or if you couldn't sleep. If you're laying in bed and too fucking hot to sleep, the, the piano is a great thing. If you're laying in bed barely able to sleep because it's really fucking hot, last thing you want. Is Bix fucking beater back banging <laughs> on his fucking boom box up in the fucking bellhop. Sorry, I was trying to find another B there. He's not a bellhop. And on the evening of August 6th, at about 9.30 p.m., his rental agent, George Crosslaw, who apparently lived right across the hall from him. Wait, before we step forward, I'm going to put another warning out here. There's some distinctly weird you know, paranoid, weird racism coming up. Yeah. And also some, you know, so the the man's going to die. So uh, once again, if you have a weak stomachs, I'd say move forward like, what, three minutes? Uh, not even that. Let's give it two. All right. Well, go ahead and skip forward about two minutes then. And so his rental agent, George Crosslaw, heard noises coming from across the hallway. And to quote George, he said, his hysterical shouts brought me to his apartment on the run. He pulled me in and pointed to the bed. His whole body was trembling violently. He was screaming. There were two Mexicans hiding under his bed with long daggers. To humor him, I looked under the bed, and when I rose to assure him that there was no one hiding there, he staggered and fell, a dead weight in my arms. I ran across the hall and called in a woman doctor, Dr. Haberski, to examine him. She pronounced him dead. Dude fucking died because he was scared of Mexicans under his bed? Well, his official cause of death was lobar pneumonia. <laughs> so you don't die maybe, of lobar pneumonia standing in a hallway, bro. I don't know. <laughs> I looked up what lobar pneumonia was and could not understand a single word that it says. But maybe it caused him to, I don't know, hallucinate. I I'm not trying to give excuses here. But. <laughs> yeah, so, like, this is, we, I, I had hinted towards that this was going to, like, my favorite reveal because I accidentally ruined this for myself while I was doing my separate research for this guy. And, you know, there's no way you don't read that little bit and just enjoy a hearty chortle, regardless of, you know, racism, whatever. This, this fucking white guy is yelling about Mexicans with sharp knives under his bed that he has a heart attack to go to. You know, whatever. It's cool. He already probably did old kid. So we're, gonna, we're just going to light Bix Beaterbeck up with the brightest asshole spotlight anybody who we actually have done an episode about has gotten so far. Do you, I, I'm, I, like, I'm seeing, I'm being serious here, Ian. Do you think there's anybody who's more lit up in the asshole spotlight than Bix Beaterback at this very moment? Oh, uh, I mean, Lead Belly did, like, 
kill a dude and cut up a bunch of people. So. And he slashed that dude with a razor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did do that. All right. So Bix and Lead Belly standing shoulder and shoulder in the asshole spotlight for all of eternity. And so Bix's mother and brother brought his body back home to Davenport. He was buried there on August 11th in the family plot at Oakdale Cemetery. Fucking family plots. Do I have a family plot anywhere? Do you have a family plot? I would have to talk to my parents, but... I don't have a family plot. I don't... Yeah, I I can't imagine I do. Because I know a few members of my family who are dead, and they're all in different cemeteries, so I would assume there's no uh, no family plot with my name on it anywhere. Is that, like, a thing from, like, the old times? Is Or is that, like... No, people do it now. I assume you just have to have a lot of money to do it now. I think they do it on a payment scale. <laughs> yeah. So if you're making payments for where you're going to eventually be buried, yeah, you're rich enough to not give a fuck about money. Like, we're not even talking about economics here. If you can pay money just for comfort when you're dead, yeah, you got you have enough money. Let's stop talking about how terrible Bix Beaterbeck is baking in the, uh, the frost fire orange glow of the asshole spotlight. And the lake of fire. Yeah, and probably hell if you actually touch that five-year-old kid, you're you're probably... And I'm not even a religious man, and we don't bring uh, politics into this or religion or anything like that. And I'm not talking about, like, a religious hell. I'm just talking about if you touch a little kid, you suck. Dude, just don't. I, I'm not going to talk about it anymore, and we're, we're not making any huge, uh, like, political statements, but that's just a basic form of life. Fuck you if you did. So... We're going to talk about a little thing that happens when people publicize events and not everybody actually takes all the information. And when all those people who don't have all the information then form their own opinions and then suddenly something that really, really sucks becomes really, really romanticized. Okay, what do you got? July 29th, 1936, Otis Ferguson publishes an article in New Republic. This is called The Young Man with the Horn. This is where it begins. This is the straw that eventually leads to the pile that breaks the, the camel's back. Otis portrays Bix in a very, very positive light. So much romanticizing the life of the man that he puts away all the negative things that this man could have possibly done and essentially lumps all of the things that he did onto a quote-unquote generic tragedy Essentially, what they're doing is they're using the what what ends up happening is the publicity of people. People read the article and don't understand what the man actually did, and suddenly they all started to form this Bix Beater Beck is awesome and have this tragic, sad ending. Like they didn't even portray his alcoholism in any way. Well, well I mean, there was definitely the portray of alcoholism, but even in the uh, even in the article itself, uh, it's available. Like I said, uh, it, it's called the Young Man with the Horn. Go look it up. It's it's available for everyone. There's actually a follow-up uh, article by the same man that makes it even worse. Go form your own opinions. Like, I, I'm trying to share my, my view of it, but I also don't want to make anybody choose anything. Read these articles. They're not super long. They're worth the read. I mean, you know, it's 1920s language, so it's a little kind of weird, but nothing too bad. But from there, uh, it, it starts to get much worse. As uh, people following this theme start to write Bix Beaterbeck as this hugely tragic figure. He uh, actually has a whole bunch of memoirs over the next 60 years that uh, I think a four or five in total of like full-on memoirs of his life. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, so there's actually like, there, there's multiple titles. 
I mean, just to just to cite the the original ones, we have the Stardust Road, nineteen forty six. Sometimes I wonder, nineteen sixty five, and then really the Blues, nineteen forty six. Called it music, nineteen forty seven. There's people who literally portray this man to a parallel of Beethoven with his with his tragic nature. Oh wow! Yeah, so uh, it's it. It almost becomes like a a cult notion. I can't say, like, there wasn't cult films or cult media at that point, but the notion itself became cult that Bix Biederbeck was this, the first of the jazz guys who was so tortured in his soul that he just produced this highly emotional music, you know, this ultra-romanticizing of what this man was, and he experienced it to the ridiculous degree, to the point that they did something so ridiculous they named one of the asteroids in our asteroid belt of our solar system after Mr. Beerbeck. No way. Yeah, shit, you fucking not, dude. And uh, that's not the only thing. There is, there's a music festival named after the man. Really? Yeah, a whole music festival, na- festival named after the man. Does it still play to this day? Yeah, in Davenport, Iowa, they have the uh, Bix Beerbeck Memorial Jazz Festival. Oh, wow. It gets even more crazy when they have the Big 7 Road Race, where tens of thousands of runners run in the Bix Beaterbeck Road Race. They, they have Bix Beaterbeck bobbleheads, uh, bumper stickers, and things like, you know, t-shirts, little little doodads you can get a big Bix Beaterbeck while you run a foot race, which is completely unfucking connected to this guy. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's at least at the same time as this festival. I mean, the, at least a jazz festival makes a little sense because the guy played jazz. That's so odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was quite insane. I really had to share that because it is. It is ridiculous. And to to really get more ridiculous with you, if you go to minorplanetcenter.net, you can find. Two, three, four, five, seven, Beaterbeck. Almost made two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, if he was discovered literally months earlier, he'd have been two, three, four, five, six. But that goes to another person. Uh, two, three, four, five, seven, Beaterbeck. You can find a minor asteroid, and it gets even better because if you start to look at this, you can get a lot of cool information that you just have to kind of look at a little terms. I'll break a little few things down for you. It's one of the major asteroids that's in our asteroid belt. It's in a weird orbit. It's kind of tilted compared to the orbit of the rest of the uh, galaxy. Uh, At best, it comes within 1.12316 AU of the Earth. What's an AU? Uh, Astronautical unit. Uh, It's a really ridiculous number. Uh, It's based on the average distance between Earth and the sun. So oh, wow. The, so the average distance between the Earth and the Sun is what we consider an AU. And it's 26 of those, essentially? No, it's, it, it is one point. Uh, oh, one point. Yeah, 1.12316. So at any one point from the Earth, it is the same distance as the Sun from us. Wow. Bix Beaterbeck is just circling us in this weird elliptical orbit, just watching down on us from his weird space junk completely dead asteroid (laughs) well maybe someday we'll mine that asteroid and find some cool minerals we can use and i i promise you guys there's there's by no means this weird website sponsored us so don't feel like weird about it but that like i said that minorplanets.org or excuse me uh minorplanetcenter.net uh has this really cool thing where if you find the profile of it you can click on a little button called interactive orbit sketch it's right in the middle of the screen 
and we'll actually show you the the exact orbit of that minor piece of planet. We did look at that earlier today before we started the podcast. It is it is neato, and then once you you'll start to get. I mean, if you're the type of person who goes down rabbit holes on the internet, you'll be looking at the orbit of so many minor pieces of space trash for no fucking reason. So just be careful, but on um, what you click on. But it's it is amazing and educational and great. Well, now that we're done talking about the super fun subject of astrophysics. I feel educated now. <laughs> well, it's the more you know moment as we stop into the final thoughts of Mr. Bix Biederbeck. Uh, I gotta say, Ian, first steps, I, I, I'm going into the, se- the segment like, last thoughts on Bix Biederbeck. I'm trying to lock in on this man. I'm trying to lock in on what I feel about it. And I gotta say, I'm all over the motherfucking place. I'm stumped on what to think about this guy, honestly, like, when it was announced he was dead in the jazz scene, they didn't believe it. They thought he it was just another fiction, you know, because he was always, you know, like dying that oh, day, yeah. you know. And so, so, so it was a it was a continuation of the mentality, was it? Yeah, but after they realized it was real, like the members of the jazz community, the actual players were devastated. Yeah, which I mean, okay, let's be honest. You can go ahead and put the possible claims of pedophilia on the very farthest line. If those are true, rest of everything that I say after this point literally means nothing. And that's not in a moral point of view or a religious or any politic. That's just general fucking human nature. So we're going to put that way the fuck over there. And if that's true, just whatever. Still, we can't, at least as music biographers, ignore the rest of it. That's what we're here for anyway. Yeah, exactly. So we'll we'll take one step farther and we'll look at the the bad. This dude was kind of a dick. Yeah, I mean why well, that's what you get when you drink all the time, I think. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what we really come down to is, you know, like this this rampant alcoholism and, you know, whatever chemical obsession it may be with these super famous, uh, super alpha musician types. Yeah, because this isn't the first famous jazz musician who helped change jazz that we've covered this season either. Yeah, and it's not even the first musician we've covered this season that ends this way. It's not the first musician. And like This story, is at this point, we're exactly at the end of this episode, halfway through the second season. And we were kind of joking earlier that that was kind of interesting. But now that I think about it, like it's a repetition. Anybody who has this one trait where... You know, you heavily use chemicals to kind of compensate for who you are or what you are or what you feel. You always kind of get this this gray stain on your legacy. Yeah. And, I, I you know, I'm not preaching to anybody by all means. Do what you're going to do. You are free. You have, you have control of your whole life. But if you're caring about your legacy and you care about the people around you and how they remember you after you're gone... Things like rampant alcoholism, doing a fuck ton of drugs, you know, touching five-year-old girls, things like that. That's fucked up. That shit will never, ever leave you. And that chance that was had when Bix Biederbeck could have stood side by side with Louis Armstrong in history forever is gone because of this bullshit. Well, it's interesting you say that because it really wasn't essentially rediscovered that you know, he possibly could have done that till about 2005. Like, it pretty much just went ignored yeah, and the I, rest of the time. And I absolutely understand and believe that the times probably uh, called for different measures. The sort of, you know, 
child abuse sort of mentality hadn't really come into society at that point, and that's sad. I'm not going to try and preach any, you know, historical dissidents. You all should, you know, not feel bad for him because, you know, nobody should feel bad for him. Like, seriously, that's not, that's just a morally incorrect thing. So we're not even going to try to endorse that. But I feel like there was a, there was something there that was very special. And it might have been not completely wasted, but partially wasted. And the only other thing I can think of is would jazz, and even music have you have evolved without him you know because he didn't sight read you know he just played what he heard and played to it the best he could i mean and we all know that sort of playing mentality comes a lot more from the soul and i don't mean that in the quotation marks like coming from the soul generic like you know oh my music's better because it comes from the soul there's something inside you that just comes out that very few people can actually replicate in real life yeah for all musicians, there's a sort of wide band where on the left side is you don't know anything and on the right side you know everything. And in the middle is your best moments because you don't know enough to doubt yourself. That is those moments where great music is created and that's where new genres pop up. Yeah, exactly. Look at Jimi Hendrix. He wasn't the reason for amplifiers becoming bigger, but he discovered what amplifiers could do with a guitar that nobody else had ever discovered before him. Yeah, exactly. And that, that mentality could almost be considered mirrored with Dick Dale and his tube amps and things like that short time before that. Well, Dick Dale was actually the biggest reason why amplifiers got big. No, and that's what I'm saying. Like uh, right before Dick or Dick Dale and then right afterwards you have uh, Jimi Hendrix and this whole this whole mentality is what leads to a massive shift in music stuff. But these things don't come out of wasted life and uh, at the end of the game if if what we have researched here is even 75 percent true Bix had a lot more than he actually gave us and he died too early to give it to us and there's certain things that cause that and if you enjoyed this episode please check us out on our social media we got facebook we have twitter we got spotify and if you really want to check out these songs you really should get on our spotify because we make a list of every episode Tons of music. They're all awesome. Every episode that we release here, we have a corresponding playlist with everything that we've recommended and the dude check out your songs and even a little extra stuff. So you've got more than enough listening space. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. Give us as many stars as you think we deserve on whatever platform. We're not here begging. We just love to talk about music. We love you all. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.